Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulphur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you once again for this wonderful book of Revelation that you've given to us, uh, that you gave to your servant John, who wrote it down for us to read today, uh, all these years later. And we thank you for what it tells us about you and your character and your great deeds. And we pray that this evening, as we look at this passage together, we would be encouraged, uh, we'd be built up, uh, and Lord, we'd be confident uh, in uh, what you're doing in this world and what you will do when this world comes to a close. Help us now, we pray, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in the uh, second of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the Two Towers, there's a fierce battle. It's called the Battle of Helm's Deep. And the Dark Enemy, they've gathered a great host, an army of orcs and fearsome Urukai, and having surrounded the fortress of Helm's Deep, for several days, they now broken through uh, the outer defences. Only the great keep survives, with the people trapped inside. And it's a dark moment in the great story. The end is drawing near for the forces of good. Defeat is all but certain. Evil's about to triumph. But then at dawn, in the distance, a white rider appears on the hill. Gandalf has come on his great white horse, Shadowfax, and with him come the fair riders of Rohan, and with the rising sun at their backs, they sweep down the hill to defeat and utterly destroy the enemy. Now, the imagery that Tolkien uses in that great scene of the white rider and his army of fair horsemen and the great battle is, of course, from Revelation chapter 19. The destruction 
of the forces of evil at the final judgment. Now this vision, you'll be pleased to know, is much simpler than the one we looked at last time, uh, the vision of Babylon. It's much simpler, it just has two parts to it, uh, which we'll look at in turn, uh, and which you can find on the service sheets. So part one, verses 11 to 16, the conquering king returns. Now just to fill you in on where this vision sits in the book of Revelation, it's obviously towards the end, uh, but it's actually in the middle of a set of three visions, all of which deal with the final destruction of, at the end of time, of those who oppose God and his church. Now as we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, as we've gone all the way through it, if you've been tracking the series, uh, the visions in the book don't necessarily uh, depict the events in chronological order. But rather what they do is they provide overlapping episodes and this is what's going on in these three visions. We see the same event through three different perspectives. Last week we learned of the fall of Babylon, the final implosion of the world, the world which seduces people into seeking the pleasures of luxury and wealth. And next week, a bit of a spoiler alert here, vision number three, we're going to see the final destruction of Satan, the great dragon, the one behind all the opposition to God and his people. So we'll see the world and and Satan, either side. And then this week what we see is the destruction of the agents of evil, Satan's tools with which he has oppressed the church and deceived the church throughout history. It's the end of the beast and the false prophets and all who stand with them. But the center of the vision, the key to understanding what happens at the end, is the identity of the white rider on the horse, on the white horse. So let's just look at this first section and draw out some of the details to identify who this warrior is. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, this is John speaking. And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Three things that we learn about him. Number one, he's a good conqueror. We're told in in verse 11 that he he rides a white horse. Uh, Now, in Revelation, we've seen a white horse before, uh, way back in chapter 6, if you can think all the way back there. And in chapter 6, it represented human conquerors that wage war in the world. Here, then, we find another conqueror, 
In fact, we find the conqueror of conquerors. He wears not just one crown, but he wears many crowns. It's as if he's taken them from the others. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. But he's not like other conquerors. He's not one who's bent towards evil like men. But he's one who is faithful and true. He's not come to take what is not his, as so many of the leaders of earthly armies do. No, he comes to defend his oppressed people, to liberate them from their foes. It is with justice that he wages war. He's acting in righteousness, and the result will be good for his people. He's righting the wrongs that have been done to them. He is avenging them. He's a good conqueror. That's the first thing that we learn about this warrior king. Number two, he is both beyond knowing and known to us. That sounds a little bit strange, doesn't it? In verse 12, we're told a little bit obscurely that he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's got a name. We can see he's got a name there, but no one knows what it is. Only he knows what it is. Sounds a little bit strange. What, that, what that's conveying to us is that there is mystery about him. He's a name some, that no one else knows. He's so wonderful that we can never fully grasp the depth of his character. We will ever be amazed by him. But at the same time, the passage teaches us exactly who he is. We're told exactly who he is several times. He is known to us in what is revealed to us of him through his word. His name, we are told, is the word of God. The one who reveals God's truth, the one who keeps God's promises, the one who fulfills the scriptures. We're told that he's called faithful and true, verse 13. And in verse 16, we're told that he's called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is obviously the person of Jesus being revealed to us. And of course, there is a sense in which we will never know Jesus fully. He's too wonderful for us. He's too great for us. He's, you know, we're in awe of him. He surprises us all the time as we learn more and more about him. And that's true of us now as we read the scriptures. Maybe if you went through, here through Mark's Gospel as we preached our way through that, there'll have been things that surprised you, that you, you thought, wow, I've never seen that before. At the same time, though, we do really and truly know him. The word of God reveals him. He's the one who comes to fulfill God's promises to us. When Jesus appears, what joy we will have as his people. He's the king that we've been waiting for, And it turns out that he is all that we hoped he would be, all he promised he would be. So he's a good conqueror, number one. He's both beyond knowing and yet known to us, number two. And here's the third thing that we learn about this conquering king. He comes to fulfill God's promise to judge. And 11 to 16, there are there are allusions to at least two Old Testament prophecies. There's probably more than two, but at least two. Psalm 2 
and Isaiah 63. Now, both of those are prophecies about the day when God will judge the rebellion of the nations. Isaiah 63 presents a grisly picture of a figure. We saw it referred to actually a few um, passages ago in Revelation 16. Rebellious humanity is described as being like grapes in a wine press. Remember that picture? They're to be crushed under God's wrath at the final judgment. But now we see that it is Jesus, the Word of God, the Son of God, who is coming to crush them. Crush them under his feet until their blood flows. His blood-spattered robe is testimony to this. This is what Isaiah 63, uh, verses 1 to 4 says. It's two voices. One, voice 1 says this, Who is this who comes from Edom, in crimsoned garments from Bozrah, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? In his voice 2, It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Voice one, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. Isaiah's prophecy conveys the horror of what is coming for those who rebel against the Lord, that they will fall under the wrath of the conquering King Jesus and be utterly crushed. But perhaps Psalm 2 gives us an even clearer understanding of what's going on in Revelation 19. Psalm 2 is perhaps more well known. It says this in verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together and against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. See the rebellion of the human heart in those verses, the essence of sin there, to throw off the rule of God to, and his Messiah Jesus to establish our own rule. Then as you go through Psalm 2 and you get to verses 8 and 9, part of which is quoted in verse 15 of Revelation 19, God says this to his son Jesus, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So this vision is revealing to us in pictorial form that finally this promise to judge the enemies of God comes true when Christ returns. His word, the sword of his mouth, will slay them as they stand condemned by it. There'll be no escape, and everyone will really know who Jesus is, King of kings and Lord of lords. The conquering King Jesus will return, and when he comes... He appears as the great hope of redemption for his people, but also as the great terror of his enemies. He comes in righteousness and justice to judge those in rebellion 
against him, all those who have not bowed the knee to him in this life. So let me ask you this. Is your Jesus this Jesus? As a leadership team, we've just been started planning for Christmas. And I know that sounds like it's a long way away. Christmas is coming up. Love Christmas. It's the time when we remember Jesus as the baby, God the Son, entering this world to take on flesh as a tiny baby boy. And I suspect that for many, that's the Jesus that they keep in their mind's eye. Others might think of Jesus as the healer, teacher, the the man of compassion, who walks this earth doing good to the poor and to the needy. And we read the Gospels, we're staggered by his kindness, aren't we? When we think of Jesus, maybe that's the Jesus that we think of. Perhaps when we think of him, we think of Christ on the cross. Christ dying as our substitute, him suffering under the wrath of God for our sins. A suffering servant our saviour. That's the Jesus that we have in our mind's eye. It's good for us to see him there. Perhaps we think of him as the risen Jesus in the garden. Perhaps we think of him as the ascended Jesus at the right hand of the Father, ruling on the throne of heaven. And all of these thoughts are true. This is all of who he is. The Bible says all these things about him. But is your Jesus this Jesus, is there room in your understanding for Jesus the conquering king, the white rider, the warrior lord, whose return will mean death for his enemies? For that too is who he is. He's helpless baby and heaven's champion. He's grace and glory. He's lamb and lion, he's humble servant and warrior king. And I wonder just how your Jesus matches up with what you see here in Revelation 19. If he doesn't feature like this in your understanding, you haven't got a full picture of the Jesus of the scriptures. He's returning to this world and this is how he will come as the conquering king. Now let's turn to the next section, verse 17 to 21. Now the biblical testimony is that evil is defeated at the cross of Christ, that its power is broken there, but it's not destroyed there. Defeated, but not destroyed. Here in this passage we come to the final battle And the angel's call in verses 17 to 18 is based on a pretty grisly prophecy of Ezekiel 39. And in that prophecy we see a a picture of the armies of God's enemies, of Israel's enemies, uh, dead on the field, and the carrion birds descending to eat their flesh. Notice, though, that the the angel uh, summons the birds before the battle, so confident is he of the victory that's coming. In verse 19, the battle begins. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. 
and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulphur, and the rest was slain by the sword that come, came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Let's just remind ourselves of who the characters are uh, represented in this vision. We've come across them before. Um, Johnny uh, preached about them to us a few weeks ago. The beast and the figure that supports him, here called the false prophet, uh, they came up in chapter 13. Both these figures are agents of Satan. They're depictions of the evil forces who deceive the world into false worship and who oppress God's people. The beast represents Satan-manipulated political power. Any king or regime which pressures people to trust in itself rather than worship the Lord. And there have been many prominent versions of this beast throughout history. In biblical times, there were empires like Egypt and Pharaoh, like Assyria, like Persia, like Rome in John's day. But we saw that actually there's lots of modern ones as well. Um, the Holy Roman Empire, Nazi Germany, Soviet Russia, many more. Perhaps we've started to see an emerging beast in secular government of modern Britain. We might be starting to see that. These powers, what they do is they seek to gather allegiance to themselves alone and end up oppressing anyone whose allegiance is to Jesus Christ. Now, in support of those political powers is Satan-manipulated ideology, the false prophet of these verses, the power behind the throne. This represents the ideas or the philosophies or the religions which work to support the oppressive regimes that get people to buy into them, to receive their mark and worship it. And so in Rome, in John's day, uh, there was the Roman, the cult of the emperor worship uh, that everyone had to take part in. It ensured the allegiance of the subjects to the emperor. If you didn't join in, you were punished. And in a similar way, in Mao's China or Soviet Russia, uh, the atheistic communist ideology, it drove allegiance to the state as the highest value in society and it brutally put down any who wouldn't bow the knee to it. And then famously, 500 years ago in Europe, the Roman Catholic Church, it binds itself to political power. And any dissent to its authority, such as that by Luther and Calvin and the other reformers, is met by violent opposition. And perhaps in the UK today, it seems to increasingly be the case that if you do not hold to what are called British values, if you don't toe the government line on things like sexuality or gender, for example, and in turn, of course, that's supported by ideological lobbying, if you don't bow to that, you're likely to feel the bite of the beast. Press may oppose you. Perhaps even the law itself might get you in its grip. And if you saw that interview about the current hate crime legislation earlier this week, it's starting to feel a little beastly. Prosecuting people for what's said in their own homes feels to me a little bit like what's going on here. 
And those things, they may well cause us to fear, mightn't they? The presence of those things certainly would have caused the readers of John's um, revelation in the first century to fear. They certainly would in, in many countries around the world where these battles are fiercest. But maybe for us too, we're starting to feel anxious about the things that might be coming. What does Revelation 19 teach us about how to think of this? How to see this? When, the, when we see this stuff going on in the world around us, in our own society, what does Jesus want us to hear? There's an African story that goes like this. A lion once wanted to prove his supremacy. So he went to various groups of animals and he was roaring at them and asking, who's the king of the animals? And one by one, with trembling, they all acknowledged, you, of course. But when he approached the elephant with the same question, it did not reply. So the lion repeated his question a second time and a third. At that, the elephant wrapped his trunk around the lion, lifted him up in the air and smashed him to the ground. Humiliated, the lion shambled off, mumbling, you don't have to be angry just because you don't know the answer. What's the point of that story? That in the end, the question of who the king really is, is decided not by the fear one might cause, not by who roars the loudest, but by the power one has to win the contest. The forces of evil in this world, Satan's agents, political oppression, religious ideologies, they strut and they bluster and they threaten and they roar at the people of God. And they appear at times to have all the power and they often cause great fear for us. But when Christ is challenged by them and the final contest comes he will slam them to the floor. We read that the beast and the false prophet are captured just as the battle begins. And then they are thrown alive into the lake of fire. The battle in the end is a short one and an easy victory. What confidence that gives to weak and fearful and anxious people like us. That we have a champion and that he will win. So that's really what this vision is about. It's about the final battle in the cosmic war between Christ and the forces of evil, and in the end, Christ wins. Let's just close by asking this question. Where are we in this vision? Where are you? Which side am I on? That's the question I think this passage leaves us asking. Which side am I on? And there are only two options. Option one is that you're in big trouble. Did you notice the final verse? It didn't have the beast and the false prophet in view in the final verse. It had the rest. And the rest was slain by the sword that came out from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That's a reference back to verse 18. The flesh of the rulers who oppose Christ, yes, but also the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. 
in that great scene in the two towers, when the orcs see Gandalf on the hill, they quiver with fear, for in his appearance they see their doom. When those who have rejected Christ in this life see on that last day the white rider appear, it will be a horror to them. It will be too late then to turn to him for mercy. When he appears, the opportunity to take cover, to escape his wrath, will be over. So we must urge you to trust in the shed blood of Christ now for the forgiveness of your sins today before your blood is shed by him on the final day. There's mercy available now from the king and he's kind and good to those who turn to him but we mustn't leave it too late. Perhaps that's not you though. Perhaps you are trusting in the blood of Christ now. You haven't bought into the world and Satan's lies. You're standing firm as one of God's people. So the church John writes to is under the cosh. It's, it's threatened, it's persecuted. And it seems very much to them that they're surrounded by these fearsome enemies. Where are they in the vision? Where are we in the vision? And I think the answer to that is a surprising one. Look at verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Previous passage in verses 7 and 8, we saw the saints, those who trusted in the death of Christ, and they were dressed in these white robes. Here we see them in the great charge of the army of heaven, following their king into battle to share in his victory. It's a similar idea that was expressed in chapter 17. They will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. This is a visual image of what Paul expresses in more concrete terms in 1 Corinthians 6, when he says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That's the sign to be on. In the end, the conquering King Jesus will return and he'll completely destroy the agents of evil and all who stand against him. And so there are two options. Reject the king and face his wrath on that day or repent and turn to him now for mercy and guarantee that you will share in his victory when he comes. Let me pray. Lord God, we come uh, as people who are all too aware of the evils of this world, the evils that we see in our newspapers, on our TVs, and particularly the evils which are against your church, which are pushing against them, putting them under pressure, which are seeking to conform them to this world, and who are punishing them if we don't. Lord God, we thank you for the great confidence this passage gives us that one day all the enemies of your people will be destroyed, rightly judged by your Son, the Lord Jesus. Lord God, we thank you that on that day we can be on your side 
And we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ, which enables us to be there. In his name we pray. Amen.